everyone, welcome to Morning Matcha. I'm so happy to be here with our three very special guests today. And I had the privilege of meeting them a few months back at a film screening, and they were so kind to join us today. So I'm really excited to introduce you to Eamon Harrington. He's the director of the film Not Carol, and he's the co-founder of Planet Grand. Planet Grande. Planet Grande. And we're here with Veronica Brady, the producer of the film, and also Diana Barnes, who is a psychotherapist, and she um, specializes in women's reproductive health and is sometimes on council, right? I, I yeah, on I'm counsel. on cases. On cases. I'm retained by council yeah. on cases of infanticide. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, first, I want to get started by asking you how you all got connected with um, this film. Did you know each other before? I know, Diana, they must have connected with you later on or maybe um, midway through. But tell me, maybe, Veronica, you can tell me. Well, we, we uh, did reach out to Diana right away when we start to work on the film not carol and um you can tell it yeah. you can say it i'm so excited well <laughs> at first diane was like no i can't talk to you <laughs> because really? you know she was protecting her her client i was trying to protect privilege. confidentiality yes. and respect privilege and i was concerned about getting involved in anything and i didn't you know i didn't know veronica and Eamon like yeah. i know them now yeah you know, five so. years later. How do you know, we all know each other? <laughs> how do you know, um, like, who do you go to to check on whether you can talk to them or not when you get a call like that? Or is it just an. Well, I kind of know what my professional yeah. boundaries are. Yeah. And I try to be really respectful of that, just from an ethical as well as from a legal perspective. And so I'm very cautious. And even though they are the most amazing people in the world, at that first phone call, I really didn't know who Veronica was, and it took time to develop a relationship, and I owe that to Veronica. <laughs> Persistent. Persistence. <laughs> um, well, okay, so actually, let's backtrack a little bit. Will you tell us, Veronica, a little bit about Not Carol? Sure. Uh, Not Carol is um, a documentary about a woman named Carol Coronado, and um, we came to uh, read about this case really right right when it happened and uh, Eamon had always wanted to make a film about this subject matter and so when this opportunity came up to really look at Carol's case she was uh, in Los Angeles so that was important because we're based here and we could then go and you know shoot or whatever we had to do and so really right after we read about the um, the case we went right to Steve Allen who was her attorney and we talked to him and, and the family, right? Yeah, you know, and, and um, I'd say we were talking to, to the Coronado family a week after the, the, the incident, wow. which was on May 14th, 2014. Carol killed her uh, three young daughters, all be below the age of two and a half. And um, we knew that we wanted to make a film that sort of looked at the, the, the arc of postpartum mental illness. Um, but we wanted to find an active case that we could sort of anchor it around because it's such a big issue that, you know, there's postpartum depression, there's postpartum <clears throat> psychosis, there are baby blues, there's all kinds of facets. And then within each of those categories, there's, there's different avenues, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's anxiety or you name it. 
So, so we knew we had a big unwieldy project that we had to somehow wrangle, and we wanted to get one case to sort of anchor it around, and that's how we that's how we got into the Coronado case. Wow. Okay. And your film also goes into the other side. So it's postpartum illness, postpartum psychosis, but also you start to look into our prison system and our court system and why we're putting women like Carol in that system versus a mental institute, right? Is that, like, those are the two things that we're really looking at here. Yeah, the thing that was revealing to us is that, you know, the United States doesn't have an infanticide law, and most uh, Mm -hmm. countries in the world do. So should a case like this happen in Sweden, let's say, the first thing that happens is they would take the mother and evaluate her, and they wouldn't incarcerate her. Um, But here... That's right. That's not the and the case. way the law here in the United States looks at insanity is completely different than how those of us in the mental health profession look at insanity. Um, in the law here in the United States, you are deemed insane if you didn't know that what you were doing was wrong. Mm. So you could conceivably be floridly psychotic, but the court could decide that you still knew that what you were doing was wrong. Um, but we know that by virtue of postpartum psychotic illness, there is no rational thought. And while a woman might be doing something that appears logical, it's logical within the confines of her delusional mind. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's really hard for the court to understand. Yeah. I and um, having <clears throat> seen the film and then speaking with um, friends and family members afterwards and most of them start to understand when I explain that it's somewhat primal. So is that something that you can speak on? And what's going on in this situation? What was going on when Carol, I mean, she was sleep deprived. So many things were going on, but what was the logic in her mind? I think it's really, you know, this was clearly an acutely psychotic episode. There are some overtones of altruistic filicide and when we talk about altruistic filicide we're talking about a woman who takes the life of her children firmly believing in her delusional state that it's in the best interests of those children Um, and the reason I say that it has some altruistic overtones is that in the days preceding the critical incident she was starting to have fears about safety her own safety the children's safety and was acting out in bizarre ways trying to protect them. But I think it's really kind of, it's not clear, but I think we can be very clear that this was an acutely psychotic episode and triggered by lots of things. Um, This is a woman who has an extensive history of complex trauma. Mm -hmm. And we know that there's a greater relationship between your traumatic experiences as a child, your life-threatening experiences, and the outcomes as you grow into adulthood, and psychosis is one of them. Mm -hmm. She was also completely Mm sleep-deprived, and there's a difference between those of us who go a couple of nights and we're not getting the kind of sleep we want, and a woman who has given birth is now caring for three children under the age of three, and all by herself, without any social support, and as she described to me, day was turning into night, was turning into day, was turning into night. So she was literally falling asleep on her feet. Wow. So hard. 
was so hard. Yeah. And everybody said, of course, um, you know, what an amazing mother she was. Yeah, I know. So that, that was one thing. This is so not her, not Carol. This isn't, and yeah. that's really where the title came from because um, one of her relatives was describing her and said, well, that, that's just not Carol. Her husband's sister, yes. which is, I think, even more... Um, of a big deal to come mm -hmm. from that side of the family yeah. that she kept. And she said, I would still trust her with my children. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah, she just felt like that wasn't her. Yeah. Yeah. One of the amazing things about this story that we, we found right from the beginning is that Carol's husband, Rudy Coronado, um, who found the babies along with Carol's mom. I mean, they walked in on the scene, basically, after, after babies, babies had been killed. But... Um, Rudy, who was conflicted, I mean, he walked in and there were his three children and, and his wife was standing above them with a knife. Um, and he said his initial instinct was to kill her. He, he couldn't believe what he was seeing. But with tears rolling down his cheeks, he says, but I, I, I didn't do it and I, 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 didn't, I didn't know why other than I knew that this wasn't my wife, mm -hmm. that this is not the woman who was raising these babies. And so, you know, everyone we spoke to, to, to the person said she was the greatest mom in the world. She loved her babies. Her babies made her life that much exponentially better. She always was with the baby. She always had her arms around them or was standing right with them. Uh, and, and the footage and the pictures that we have, that we found, corroborate that, that she looked like she was a phenomenal mom. Um, so it's this, you know, it's this incredibly confusing phenomenon that happens. And, you know, what happens, of course, is when we read about it in the newspaper or we hear about it in the news, the first thing we do is we demonize that woman. We mm -hmm. say, oh, my God, she's a monster. How could anybody kill their baby? And because, because that's, that's just human nature. That's what you think. And that's what I thought all these years. Uh, until now I, know, I, now I know better. Now I know that, you know, I, mean, I don't know what the numbers are, but I'm going to say 99.9% .9 of the time, if you hear about a mother killing her child or her children, especially if she's got one below one years old, you can go to the bank that, that she's had a postpartum psychotic incident. Mm -hmm. You know, these are not monsters. These are not criminals. These are sick people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the other problem that happens too often in the media is that they'll say this woman had postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. And postpartum psychosis is a completely different illness and disorder than postpartum depression. It might fall under the umbrella of peri peripartum or perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, but it is totally different mm -hmm. and it shouldn't be confused. Well, yeah. the, the numbers are interesting, right? So there's 4 million births every year in the U.S. And out of those 4 million births, around one in every five women will have some sort of postpartum depression, which is about 800,000 women out of the 4 mm -hmm. million, some sort of postpartum depression. Um, ranging from relatively minor to severe. Mm -hmm. Out of every 1,000 births, one to two women will have a postpartum psychosis. And psychosis in this case meaning a break with reality. And if that happens, what the medical community believes, I, I tell me if I'm wrong, Diana, is that you immediately have to get the children away from the mom because it's a medical emergency if there's a psychotic break. Mm -hmm. So that's one to two out of every thousand births where there'll be a psychotic incident. Of those numbers, 4% of the women who have a psychotic break 
will go on to commit infanticide, which is killing the baby, and 5% will go on to kill themselves. Sometimes both those things are connected. They'll, they'll kill the babies and then they'll kill themselves. So if you look at it numerically, that's somewhere north of 400 women a year or so in the U.S. killing their baby, and somewhere north of 500 or so killing themselves. So, so that's not the same huge number as 800,000 yeah. moms every year having postpartum depression, but it's still an unbelievable number when you think about it. It is. <laughs> and nobody knows it. Nobody knows about it, and nobody understands it, nobody talks about it. So hopefully that's what this film mm-hmm. can, can stir, the, stir that conversation up. And I, I would add to that that what we, want to be, what we want to be thinking about when we know that a woman has postpartum psychosis is we want to protect the children. Mm-hmm. And so we need to consider it a potentially life-threatening medical emergency. Not every woman, obviously, as Eamon was just saying, not every woman who has postpartum psychosis goes on to kill her child. Mm -hmm. But for that woman, regardless, it is a medical emergency, and she needs to be hospitalized in order to be stabilized. And I know that in the film and afterwards um, in the Q&A, you guys had mentioned that there's a cure for it. Is that true? Or there's a... Like, treatment. There's, there's a treatment. treatment. Yeah, you can treat treatment. it. Yeah, you can so treat it very within like 48 hours, right? Or are you talking about the infusion? There's a new drug. Yes, I new drug. think that mm-hmm. was what was being said, maybe. Yeah. But so, what happens um, in that case? They're hospitalized. What happens to the children? What happens to? I just want to know what. Well, the I guess current well, treatment is. Right. Well, current treatment generally is um, some kind of stabilization, usually the hospital. Um, so that there can be a proper medical evaluation, the woman is given appropriate medication, uh, along with psychotherapy. And with respect to the children, you know, it depends on what that family situation is like. Some people have tremendous support systems, mm-hmm. and so they have family members to watch the children. Some people don't have access to those resources. Um, and, you know, certainly in my work doing, you know, doing the, the forensic consulting and testifying, most of the women that I am seeing are women who have not had any financial resources, have had almost no, no actually no social support. So they're at high risk for, you know, these kinds of tragic outcomes. But there has recently been a study, a clinical study about a drug out of the University of North Carolina um, where they, you know, they've been discovering that they can have a really uh, good result. Yeah, you're talking about term- the infusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's an infusion of this uh, drug. I forget the name of it at the moment, but you can then turn the psychosis around right. in a very short period of time. So, But I believe that that particular treatment costs $35,000. They say you only need one dose. Wow. But the doses cost $35,000. And you need to be hospitalized. And it's probably not covered. Or I'm sure it's not covered. Yeah. No, so, maybe so, not yet. So maybe the good news yet. is that, okay, there's something out there that can, that can, you know, lend itself to this condition, but, but for most people it's out of it's But out we of know that it's treatable. And, yeah. You know, and that's why we're so, you know, kind of ferocious about screening and identifying risks before a woman, you know, gets pregnant even or before she, you know, gives birth because we can do a lot of things to put a treatment plan in place. And I've seen this over and over again, even in my own private practice, Mm -hmm. where there are red flags. And one of the red flags is personal or family history. Carol Coronado had psychotic symptoms from the age of five. 
Mm-hmm. Wow, I know because that of her traumatic wasn't she was her grandmother. Di- her grandmother died oh, um, okay. when she was five, and her, she was very close to her grandmother. Wow, and that was a traumatic loss. Mm-hmm. And because there was already mental illness in the family, she was more vulnerable. And I even asked her. I said, um, I said, did you ever tell anybody that you were hearing voices? And she said, no. I thought everybody heard them. You know, when you're five. The world is like, yeah. you know, this is what it is. You don't have any reflection on the outer world or what other people experience. And I thought it was interesting because her mother, mm-hmm. so in the film, she was calling her mother every few minutes, right, yeah. that morning, and her mother couldn't answer and how yeah. terrible her mother must feel mm-hmm. and must have felt when she walked in. Of course. And yeah. she couldn't answer because she was driving the bus. Right. School bus. The yeah. school bus. And... Um, and she said at one point in the film, she said, I had this, did she have postpartum yes. depression or psychosis? psychosis? And she had the same mm-hmm. feeling that she should kill her children, but she was like, but I never acted on it. Right. So it's part of those statistics, right? Yeah. So she had the psychosis, she just didn't act on it. But um, She so too I, heard voices. The mom heard someone telling her what to do and she, you know, was able to block it or not do it, but... You know, That's not the Carol also had a very, um, you know, beyond, beyond the voices that she began to hear at five, she had a very traumatic uh, upbringing for all kinds of other reasons. Mm-hmm. Well. She was sexually abused. She was multiple gang- times. Multiple mm-hmm. times. She was gang raped when she was in the army. You know, she was she, oh, yeah. she was sort of a model citizen. She 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 was in the she was in the army. She got honorably discharged because she she was uh, you know she was going to be dispatched, but she got hurt. I think she hurt her hip or something, so they they discharged her. She was going to school to become a radiologist. Um, yeah, and she had almost completed that particular degree, uh, but she had the three babies very quickly together. Rudy went to work every day at the L.A. swap meet, so he wasn't around that much. Um, and, you know, the, it, just because of his sort of cultural up, upbringing, he wasn't used to being sort of a hands-on dad. Mm-hmm. He expected, oh, well, Carol's the mom. She's going to take care of the kids. I'm going to go to work. And it was a very kind of, you know, old-school, mm-hmm. traditional approach to parenting. It wasn't a modern approach to parenting by any means. They were living at the low end of the socioeconomic ladder. They were in a very, very small house, you know, a, a converted garage, actually. Um, so there were lots of things that were sort of contributing to Carol's cumulative effect. Stress. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Stress. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But Rudy did stand by her right from day one, which yeah. was... Pretty remarkable. Yeah, he was, he was really in her court and did everything that he could. Yeah, he was you know, very out front, t- very out front in the media saying this was, you know, you know, I, I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a he didn't call himself a victim, but like you know I didn't know what to look for. Right mm-hmm. I, now this I was eye opening for him. It was eye opening for him, and then and since the incident, Rudy has been very proactive in sort of putting himself out there, going to conferences, talking to other people about his situation. You know, as hard as that has been so for him. So difficult, yeah. I think one of the things in the film that has really touched me so deeply is when he says. Um, you know, she was a much better wife than I was yeah. a husband. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 She was a much better woman than, than I am a man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, which he really believes, and it was hard to admit, but he did. Mm-hmm. And looking back on it, and, you know, that's part of the hope of the film, too, is that it can, you know, we can show it to people before they're anywhere near this in their life, mm-hmm. you know? 
we've had young people see it, young men see it and say to us, wow, I didn't know anything about this. I'm so glad I saw it because now I'll know. I know everyone needs to watch this. Yeah, it's, pain, it's a painful film to watch it and it's difficult. But once, my goal in making the film was once you see the film, you'll never question again that this is real mm -hmm. and that this does happen. And you'll always know and you'll be unafraid to say something. What was, so initially you had read about it in the paper and then you decided, or how did, well, so how did you go from that to doing the film and then how, what was your, I know this is like a three part question, how did you feel after the film versus what you initially thought when you read that paper? Well, years and years ago, I mean, we, we were, uh, my, I, I own Planet Grande Pictures with my part, my business partner, John Watkin. And so um, we got a phone call one day out of the blue. We make documentaries. That's what our mm -hmm. that's what that's sort of what we do. And so uh, we got a phone call out of the blue from a guy called Bob Dylan. No relation. <laughs> and and, and uh, he and he said, "I hear you guys make documentaries. I live out in the California desert. I forget the name of the town, but somewhere way out there on the fringes. And uh, my wife is in jail right now because she killed our little baby. And." Um, that wasn't my wife, and I want to do a film about it. And so we said, oh my God, wow, what a, wow. And, and so we got off the phone with him. We called HBO, who we, we had been doing a lot of films with, and we talked to a woman there named Sheila Nevins, who used to run the docu unit at, at HBO. She's kind of the queen of documentaries in the US. And we said, we got this phone call, and she said, that sounds really fascinating. Why don't you guys start shooting, and uh, let's see where this goes. So we, we, we began to shoot. And what we found out is that the judge in that case was not going to allow cameras in the courtroom. Mm. And we said that we told Sheila that and she wanted she wanted it to be she wanted kind of court the courtroom aspect to be a part of the film. So we abandoned the film. We, we never finished it. But and that was probably 10 or 12 years ago. But wow. the but the but the kernel of that story like that got implanted in my head like, wow, I never heard anything like that before. Mm -hmm. And it always sort of stuck with me. So, you know, five or six years ago. We kind of resurrected the idea inside the office, but you know, we you know, we said to Veronica, you know, we need a case, if, and and so she went out and found the case, <laughs> and um, that's how it started again. But this time we were not doing it for an HBO or for any any entity. We and, and we were so we had to self fund the film with the help of angel investors, which Veronica went out and found, and we and we had a couple, you know, I mean, true true angels because this film wouldn't exist without. Uh, Robin Moore and Trisha Small, uh, who who helped us, you know, helped us get it done, and we also had help from a group called Artemis Rising, and which is part of the Utah Film Center. So, you know, with the help of those three entities, we got this thing over the finish line, and now we're looking for distribution. You know, but but it's exactly the film we wanted it to be. You mm -hmm. know, in in the sense that um, it asks all the questions, it provides some answers. It, it, it is, um, it's, ad it's addressed, it's addressing both men and women, you know, because it, it, most people would think of this as a women's issue. It is a woman's issue, of course, but, you know, husbands are as much a part of this as, 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 as you know, it's part of the family, right? Definitely. It's systemic. It, it's mm -hmm. systemic and husbands need to know what to look for, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and they need to know. And so there's a bunch, there's a bunch of men in this film uh, who talk about their experiences with the, with the disease. And, and so... How did you find them? You just went out and... Well, we interviewed them. We interviewed a lot of people in the course of making the film all around the country. And um, those men were all assembled in California uh, with Joy Burkhart to 
uh, try and get some, um, you know, focus on legislation and changes mm -hmm. for screening and other other things, which is actually making some progress in the United States now. Now, it, I think every state, right? Does there has screen. to be, uh, it's, it's now a law that you have to screen, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Do they screen? I'm just trying to think of my own experience. Yeah. They screened like kind of right after I gave birth. I would say that I had to fill something out. Right. But is that... Which actually is really not enough. Yeah. Because you're not going to get the really, you're not going to get a right reading mm -hmm. if you're giving a screening to somebody. Right after know. they gave birth. You're just not. You know, and um, when does this kick in? The I mean, it's better than nothing. Yeah, but it's you're not going to. You might not get the reading you want. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that's really interesting is that, like you were saying, Diana, that the you know a, a good doctor, midwife, nurse, you know, they're gonna there's gonna be signs many times before you give birth. Right. How, How are you thinking about it? Yeah. Anxiety that you might feel, worries that you might have. Maybe the birth was traumatic. Maybe it brings up all the stuff with your mom. Right. Who knows? You know, for everybody, it's a whole different thing. Right. But, you know, if you're watching, you can see it. Mm -hmm. And if you know what it is, right. you can get the help that exactly. you need or make the plan. Right. I mean, when I'm on a case, one of the things that I do, I've kind of coined the word reproductive roadmap, mm -hmm. is that I will go back and track every pregnancy, every postpartum period. Because one of the things that we know is if you've had one untreated episode of depression, anxiety, psychosis, your risks for a more severe recurrence in a subsequent pregnancy go up. So we're talking about Carol who had three children mm -hmm. within the space of three years who already was having psychotic symptoms at the birth of her first child. But nobody asks those questions. Mm -hmm. And though she had red flags all along the way, you know, we think women snap. Well, yeah, on the day of, yeah. but there is a whole cumulative effect that mm -hmm. goes along with this. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the other, um, the men that were interviewed whose wives had committed infanticide and suicide, they, some of the um, men were saying that it, it happened right away, like right, was that, was there one case or were they all kind of like that, where right after she gave birth, she just... Uh, yeah, in some cases. Well, no, the one guy was saying, um, I forget his name now, jeez, I can't believe I forget his name, but, but um, he was saying that basically when his wife began to breastfeed again. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Within two weeks, like that, that, that was, that was a trip, took the, I'm sorry, wasn't breastfeeding, was taking the pill. Because mm -hmm. uh, often it will happen, you know, when, when, if a woman stops breastfeeding. Stops breastfeeding. Um, or if they go back on the pill or whatever. So it's, any sort of hormonal shift like that, right? Um, and for, in, in his case, his wife uh, took a birth control pill and within two weeks that was her decline. And I think their baby was dead within two or three weeks after the, after, oh, after that yeah. incident. Mm -hmm. She killed both the baby and herself. Yeah, and they had no idea what was going on. And, you know, he was doing everything, including sleeping in the same room, all oh. of them together, trying to just keep his eye on her because she was so yeah. so distraught. Yeah, he, he, this is not in the film, but he tells us the story where basically, like, he was nervous for his wife because he was watching this rapid decline with her. And, he, mm -hmm. and you know, and, and they did talk to some people, like, hey, what's going on with the wife? And But no one was really, no one was astute enough to sort of, you know, step in and, and help. But he was concerned. 
So he, they, they were all sleeping in the same bed, and he just happened to nod off. It was in, in the middle of the night. He just fell asleep. And when he woke up a few minutes later, the, the wife and the baby were out of the bed. And he said, oh, my God, where are they? He went into the living room. That's where he found them. Mm -hmm. So he was actually watching out, trying to mm -hmm. you know, keep his eye on his wife and uh, missed it in a couple minutes. You know? So that's why it's a medical emergency. That's, that's why these mm -hmm. moms need to be separated. You know, as cruel as that sounds, you know, they need to get immediate help. And, and that's the radar that we all need to have that no one has ever had really yet. And mm -hmm. so but that's the radar that needs to be up. And training, too, because it doesn't get yeah. discussed, really, in medical school. or, And then, you know, you have a baby and you're, you see your OBGYN six weeks later. You're really going to the pediatrician more, so the pediatrician needs Should to be, be aware. To and, you know, the follow-up is not there. And then I think right. sometimes women might feel shame about how they're feeling. So they'll cover it up and they'll say, no, everything's great. Oh, I'm great. And now we're finding... Um, I'm on the board of Postpartum Support International now, and Diane is a former president and now on the President's Advisory Committee. But what we also find with social media and women who are like you have a small child now, that there's a lot of social pressure mm -hmm. to present yeah. in present a very way. perfect way that this is all going so great and I'm balancing everything. And oh, I mean, yeah, Facebook, is, Facebook is really the enemy of new mother. Yeah. I just um, recently reconnected with a friend, a really close friend of mine from um, high school, family friend, and we hadn't seen each other, but we both got married like a month apart and then our babies are two months apart. And mm -hmm. so um, for my son's birthday, I invited her and then we reconnected after and um, through social media, it just looks like everything's perfect. And then, um, and then I just found out so many things that I mm -hmm. just would not have known. Right. And it really just made me, I mean, I always think about this a lot with social media, but then that just, um, that really made well, there's, me think. There's a lot of shame among women who feel that they're not measuring up to this unrealistic expectation of how new mothers are supposed to feel, how they're supposed mm -hmm. to behave. Uh, you know, we're expected to be sleep deprived and then be gracious about mm -hmm. it. You know, even though they use that as torture in prisons. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you know, it's, this is one of the most important events in a woman's life. Her body, her psyche, everything about her changes. And yet we treat it like just another day, mm -hmm. you know, just another Tuesday. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I often say, where else in life do you go into a situation as one person and then you come out as two people? Yeah. But we really don't make any kind of sacred space for that in our mm -hmm. culture. No. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And the emphasis like w with family coming over and so excited there more em the emphasis is on the baby like who gets to hold the baby who gets to do this and no one's really taking care of the mom right mm -hmm. um so it's really interesting yeah new mothers need to be mothers so yeah. they can go on and be mothers mm -hmm. yeah it's so true and, and i was going to say what's what's our experience has been with the film is so amazing is you know we've had a, had a handful of private screenings you were at one of them and afterwards so many times uh, young mothers or, or even mothers, you know, who have been mothers for a long time come up to us and say, oh, my God, 
this is my story. Like, you know, I didn't, I didn't wow. kill my children, but I, I, I suffered, I, you know. And, and they had never, they've never said it before. They've never talked about it because they've come through it. It's, but this is, and, and so for me, it's been, oh my God, this is, this is, this is bigger even than I, than I, we found out in the film. It's, mm-hmm. it, it's touching so many people. We had, a, we had two young women at our house yesterday or two, what day is today? Mm-hmm. Sunday. And uh, both these women were like talking about, you know, this, this was, this was their story, you know? So, um, I don't know. I think it's. I think this this condition, this 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 postpartum mental health issue, really touches. <laughs> God bless. Really, really touches way way more people than we think it does. Yeah. I think so too. Yeah. I think. I mean, even like um, the whole postpartum depression, baby blues, all that, even though it's one in five, like you were saying, my experience, my group, I, more than half. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's where we live or what it is, but I would say definitely 10 out of 15. I I felt like the odd one out, and which was good. It made me, I don't, it was like a good thing because I was so happy to be in a group where women were so vulnerable, so, so open to sharing, crying, and and it just gave me so much Speaking insight. the truth. Yeah, it was beautiful. and Right, but you see, you're, you probably have a great structure of family around you. Exactly. Cult, my culture my is culture. more mm-hmm. yeah. because I have a big family and my mom is close by and yeah. my, I have so much support. Um, and like you said, that plays a big part of it. Absolutely. Um, my, I did like, I've been, this is my work, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm really passionate about this and making sure like before I was um, pregnant even, or while we were trying, I knew that I wanted to emphasize on like how I'm going to support myself and my child rather than like what necessarily the nursery is going to look like. I knew Mm -hmm. that the emphasis. Good for you. Yeah. I think that. I mean, but I'd heard that because I've interviewed people. I've been seeking that information out. Right. Most people just don't know that. But mm-hmm. I just happen to be lucky enough to be interviewing people who are telling me these things. And um, Surya Spa is an Ayurvedic spa mm-hmm. here that's close by, but they have a whole mother baby program. And I interviewed the founder and she was like, no, it's about afterwards. It's not about What, you know, you spend your whole pregnancy thinking about what is this place going to look like? What is this going to look like? Which is fun and great. But really, it's about how are you going to support yourself? How are you going to be able, who's going to mother you to be there for your, and then, and I read a lot about different cultures and, um, you know, that there's so many different ways, like in China, I think they, like a woman go back and live with their, I don't know if it's China or Uh, one of the Asian countries, you go back and you live with your mom Mm. and, uh, and you actually leave your husband and you go back and live with your mom and then your mom takes care of you and then you take care of the baby. Mm. And I found that really interesting. I mean, it's not something I wanted to do. I wanted to be with my husband and have that, but you kind of make your own thing. Right. And you create your own structure. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. not most people don't have that that's not their situation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's a modern society. One of the fascinating things about watching the trial of Carol Coronado, which we didn't explore deeply in the film because it really is another issue altogether, but the prosecutor was a woman named Emily Spears, and she was visibly yeah. pregnant during the, I mean, nine months pregnant during the last yeah. days of the trial. Yeah. And 
to watch as you do mm -hmm. in the court where we were the backs of these two women, right? This very successful woman who's doing an amazing job from the prosecutor's point of view. And she's nine months where she was so winded giving her uh, closing remarks that the judge had asked her to sit down. He was so concerned for her well-being. And we had to kind of move the trial along really quickly because he wanted to do it and, and finish the trial period before she gave birth. And here was this other woman, also very successful in many ways, who had gone through this. And it just was this shocking view of what it takes to be a mother in America to mm -hmm. me how unsupported mm -hmm. both of them were, really, in many ways. You know, they were both doing what they needed to do and what they had studied to do and what they wanted to do, but you're expected to be more than one person mm -hmm. yeah. as an American woman. I mean, maybe this is true, I'm saying, as an American woman in a modern setting, I'm sure the same is true all over the world in all different uh, communities, but to watch that, it's really asking a lot mm -hmm. of one person to be to be so accomplished at so many things uh, across the board mm -hmm. and have everybody expect you to, to be, be successful at that level right. across the board. Mm -hmm. And of course, the irony of watching a pregnant woman really aggressively prosecute a woman who has just killed her three babies was really like, oh my God, this is this is just, uh, it's almost surreal. And um, she did prosecute very aggressively and, and uh, you know, she won. Know. So Carol was found guilty of uh, triple homicide and she was uh, sentenced to three life sentences in Chowchilla State Prison, which is an all women's prison um, about five hours north of LA. So she's up there and, and no um, possibility of parole. No possibility of parole. So uh, she lost an appeal, and then the California Supreme Court has, has, has said that they don't want to hear they the case. They denied the hearing the case. So basically, um, most likely, Carol will spend the rest of her life in jail. Now, you know, we've heard of films and documentaries that sometimes get cases re-looked at, and we're hoping that maybe that can that can happen with not Carol the film, mm -hmm. um, but at the very least, if it doesn't help Carol's specific case, we are hoping that it that it will open people's eyes so that these kinds of cases can get looked at differently, and that the legal system can change. The law the law is so antiquated. The the the, the laws that we use to to convict people um, like this. Uh, are, the, the, the law was written in the 1860s. It's, I mean, it's literally almost, it's almost 150 years old. It's a ridiculously old, antiquated it's law. It's an insane law about insanity. Mm -hmm. And it hasn't kept up with medical science, yeah. right? So, I mean, medical, I mean, imagine medical science, <laughs> the, the progress that we've made in the last 150 years, except the law still, it, it was written 150 years before all, all of this, these advances. So, you know, there are there are indications that little small things are happening in, in uh, I think it's Illinois. Um, postpartum psychosis is now mm -hmm. uh, an allowable defense in an infanticide case. That's the first state in the country that where that's true. I think am I right, Diana? I believe. Well, I think what it, if I understand it correctly that yeah. you can now use postpartum depression or psychosis 
uh, in post-conviction relief mm -hmm. as a mitigating factor in sentencing. So I now am actually getting letters from women who are incarcerated in Illinois asking me if I would review their records because they're filing for post-conviction relief. It's the first time that's happened in the United yeah. States. So, so the fact that that's happening, I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's a positive move forward, yeah. Yeah. you know. Um, yeah, and, and I think California is being somewhat aggressive in mm -hmm. their attempt to get the law right. changed here. Right. Mm -hmm. but, it, but the way it's happening is a state-by-state -state thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we really need is national legislation. But, you know, I'm not sure that that's a reality under this current administration, and, and we'll, we'll have to see. Well, also, each yeah. state has its own statutes, so you kind of have to go through state-by-state. State, yeah, it is interesting because it's tough. when you're talking about insanity, most of the states, not all of them, but I would say the majority of the states are working with this McNaughton law from 1848 or whenever it was. Um, but each state interprets the law a little differently. So there's, there's no consistency across states. Yeah, yeah. It's very tricky also when you think of her there now. You know, here is this woman that we all witnessed as being so ill and is she getting any help um who's in touch with her she's very far away from many of her family members so it's not like people can go every mm -hmm. week and check on her she's tr truly isolated and uh and vulnerable in, and because vulnerable of her crime and in this system that is we doubt very much you know getting her the kind of medical yeah. treatment that she not. have any of you seen her no, not since. not since she's gone to Chowchilla, no. Were you able to speak with her? No. Diana did. Only, Diana yeah. did, yeah. Mm -hmm. but, but we weren't. Um, we, we, we wanted to shoot her, you know, when mm -hmm. she was at the Twin Towers, and when she was being held before trial at uh, the Twin, Twin Tower in prison London, here in yeah. L.A. But you can't bring cameras into uh, in the prison system in, in California, so um, at least for cases like this. So we were never able to interview her. Um, never, never able to get to her. We've reached out to her once or twice via letter since the conviction. Haven't heard back. Um, we've talked to her family um, about trying to get in touch with her. Um, so we're, we're hoping that at least we. Can, I mean, she does know. I believe that there is there has been a film made um, that deals with her case. Um, she still is not necessarily. Uh, I, I don't believe really cognizant of what's yeah. happened. What happened? You know, yeah, so that's what I gathered in the film then. So she had a break in the courtroom, right? Right. And she was, wasn't she saying, like, where are my children? Doesn't she think this is like some... Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, in the, in, the, in the court, you know, what happened is that... Um, when Rudy testified, Rudy, her husband, testified as to what he saw that day and the whole thing, Carol sat and listened to that. And, and there were, um, when she heard, and, and in the opening remarks made by Emily Spear, the prosecutor, uh, you know, she was putting up crime scene photos and things of this nature. So for the, for the first time, Carol was seeing the results of her actions and she was seeing, there, there were pictures of her children. And, then she heard Rudy testify, and I think Rudy's testification, is that a word? Testimony. Testimony. <laughs> Rudy's testification. Um, you know, uh, that was just too much for her. Like, and you could see her, like we were sitting behind her in the courtroom, and when she was listening to Rudy testify, you could see her whole physicality was changing, and she was 
drooping and, and then you could see her shoulders going up and down. She was obviously weeping. So um, after we, they, the, the judge said, okay, that's enough for today. And they led Carol out of the courtroom. The next morning, um, we got there early, and Steve Allen, the prosecutor, the, sorry, the, her defense attorney, said, "You know, something's up with Carol. Um, you know, she's really out of it this morning." And so the 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 uh, trial was delayed for half an hour or an hour or so. And then they finally brought her in, and for the first time, they they had allowed her to dress in street clothes up to that point, um, but uh, that day she was in her, uh, you know, she was bound, handcuffed in her, in her suicide vest, and there were six big, burly, armed guards in the courtroom with her. And she was sort of talking incoherently, and, and Steve Allen was trying to talk with the judge about her, saying, I have concerns about her, I, I'm not sure she's really, you know, she's not, she's not really with it here. And uh, Carol kept talking and talking, and the judge finally said, you got to take her out of the courtroom. So the big six guards picked her up, and they literally physically kind of you know, carried her out of the courtroom and she was screaming. It was, it was terrifying to see this. And, you know, uh, as, as it went, Emily Spear, the prosecutor and the prosecution team, they were claiming that Carol was acting. And, you know, <laughs> oh that, that, and, and, I, and I have to say that if, you know, if this was acting, she deserves the Oscar because mm -hmm. this was the most horrifying thing, one of the most horrifying things I've, I've ever witnessed. It was really petrifying watching this woman fall apart. But, you know... Um, and part of it was she was calling out for her kids. She was calling out for her kids, yeah. And her mom and Rudy. Like, I think she doesn't remember what happened, right? It's kind of blacked out mm -hmm. of her mind. Because you spoke with her at Great Life. I was, yeah, I saw her three times. Um, and each time I was there a couple of hours. Um, so I got to know her pretty well. And um, she's probably one of the gentlest, uh, sweetest, most tender people I think I've ever encountered. So the the idea that she is locked up in a place where she's not going to get care, um, where she's very vulnerable because of what she's done. I mean, she yeah. she's, um, you know, even the prison system has a hierarchy. Mm -hmm. um, it really, it's really, it's it's heartbreaking. Yeah, so the goal would have been to get her in the right um, place, right? Well, a hosp a hospital. Yeah, a hospital. I mean, I've had cases where women, you know, insanity, and they've been found insane, and they go and they get, you know, mental health treatment. And they, like outpatient, or they no inpatient. Inpatient. Stayed inpatient. Well, you know, there's there's a there's references to two different cases in in, mm -hmm. in the film. One of which, there's the, the famous case that happened probably 15 years ago now that kind of put this issue on the front page of the national papers concerned a woman called Andrea Yates from Texas. And Andrea drowned her five babies. And she was found guilty um, after that particular incident. And then on her appeal, her, her attorney, George Parnum, won the appeal. So she was taken out of the penitentiary system and put into an institution where she'll spend the rest of her life. She won't walk the streets again, but she's getting the mental health you know, that she needs. Uh, and, and so that's a case where, okay, she was in jail, the judge found for her, now she's in a, now she's in a place that's safer for her, and she's getting help. There's another, there, there was a woman who we interviewed in the film and, and, and whose story is incredible named Angela Burling. And Angela 
drowned her baby probably 20 years ago now or whatever, something like that. And um, when the police came to the house, her husband was there and the husband begged the police, said, my wife is sick. This, this is not my wife that mm -hmm. did this. You know, my wife is sick. Please take her to the hospital. Don't take her to the jail. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, the police did. They did. They took mm -hmm. her to the hospital. So she, she, so she didn't go in. She didn't get the into system. the system. Mm -hmm. And as a result, she, um, I believe, was on an outpatient. For she, got a, she got a conditional release. Yeah. yeah. And so she was. So she was monitored or whatever. Had to whatever her. She had, she was monitored for 17 years, but she did, but she wasn't in the system, mm -hmm. and I and I think that's sort of what our goal. That's part of what this our goal is in the film is that when when things like this happen, that these women are not incarcerated into a into the penitentiary system, but they're put into hospitals and institutions and places that can help them. Mm -hmm. That you know, Rudy Coronado wasn't lobbying, isn't lobbying to have Carol walk the streets again. That's mm -hmm. not that's not necessarily on the table. Um, could be, but, but it's not what he's lobbying for. What he's lobbying for is that she get out of the penitentiary system and into a hospital. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted That's to. what we're lobbying for, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's and what's, what so remar like to. what's so remarkable about Angela's story is that she went on to uh, have, have, have more children, uh, go to school, educate herself, uh, and have a life mm -hmm. yeah. after illness. Yeah, it's so beautiful. I know I remember watching that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I just, and then I was telling you also about this one case recently in the newspaper where this woman turned herself in after um, trying to drown her one-year-old, was put an outpatient, but then um, had another baby, but then she ended up drowning both of them at the age of 11 and 7. So is that under the same banner? Well, I'd have to know more. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's we wouldn't we wouldn't call it postpartum depression or postpartum psychosis because really when you think about it, those are time periods. Okay. Mm -hmm. They refer to an illness, but it's an illness that has a time period. So after a year, we don't use the name necessarily, but very often, and I do this very often in my work, is we can track back to the birth of the first child, right? It's like, if we, if we look at Andrea Yates, okay? She was hearing voices after the birth of the first baby, right? But there's a thing about postpartum psychosis, it, it's what we call waxes and wanes. Mm -hmm. So you can have lucidity and clarity and then psychotic thinking. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there's remission and then it comes up again. So she was having psychotic symptoms all along, but they were building in intensity, right? And with the multiple children. Right. With each child. Right. Carol. That's all. Right. Well, yeah. Carol and, and Andrea, Andrea. Yeah. it's both of yeah. them. You know, if you have subsequent preg pregnancies, yeah. especially close together and that nothing changes, nothing's been treated, it, it, can, it can really, really, you know, just... potentially lethal. Mm -hmm. the, the infanticide laws in, in, the, in the other countries generally are written that um, if a woman kills her child um, below, within the first year right. of giving of birth, life, right? Yeah. So basically, if, if, if the kid is up to a year old and, and an incident like this happens, that is considered 
mm-hmm. postpartum psychosis. Yeah, it's just so automatically like, presumed. It's presumed. Right? As so she's not charged with murder. She's mm-hmm. charged with manslaughter. Mm-hmm. And do you feel that most people, because obviously Carol was convicted and was put into the system, into jail, she, do you feel that if more people were aware of this, they would have a different viewpoint or because it sounds like the people that were aware of it still convicted her and they i mean the prosecutor right well she didn't buy it yeah she yeah. didn't she didn't she, did, she and, and so yes yes so i would say the majority of people what do you think about the majority of people in the united states when when we were interviewing emily spear for the film who by the way is now a judge <laughs> She ran for judge and she won and she's now a judge. So she will be ruling over cases like this. But anyway, but um, when and we- And used this case yes. as her, yeah. she, she as her used, calling She card. used this case to say, look, you know, I was the woman that put Carol mm-hmm. Coronado, the baby killer away. And that, you know, but whatever. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here to diss Emily Spear. But when we were, when we were interviewing her, um, I asked her, I said, you know, before this case, did you know much about postpartum mental illness or postpartum psychosis? And she said, no. So I said, well, where did, you, where did you get your knowledge then? You know, in order, because you, you pro, you're prosecuting very aggressively, where did you get your knowledge? And she, basically, she got all of her knowledge from her expert witness, who she called um, for the case. And, uh, and, and her expert witness is an articulate guy who was able to sort of, you know, um, convince her and convince the judge that none of these things, that Carol was not suffering from postpartum psychosis, mm-hmm. that basically these were cold-blooded murders. So... Because that's what he was hired to do. That's what he was hired to do. That's what he's paid to do, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, look, you know, to answer your question, absolutely. This, this, <laughs> God bless. This, this film, I hope, can not only educate new moms and dads, but lawyers, judges, cops mm-hmm. who walk into a scene, if a cop walks into a scene and sees a bloody murder, oh my God, slap the cuffs on and get that person down to the jail. That's what we're taught. Mm-hmm. That's what we're taught or they're taught, I guess. I'm not a cop, I don't know. But, but you know, everybody needs to see this film because you will think differently about this condition after the film. There's just no way around that. Now you may, you know, you might not, not be swayed, but you, you will be, you're, you're forced to rethink the way the way you you've conditioned. been conditioned to mm-hmm. to know this mm-hmm. this stuff, you know. And that's why it needs to be distributed everywhere. Yeah, that's what we're in the process of doing. And uh, you've always said this: uh, it's going to take a brave person to distribute the film because it's a, such a heavy subject matter. But we're hopeful that you know we can get it onto a large platform. And but in, as we're going uh, about doing that, we we do show it to professionals. Uh, midwives that in the, in the mm-hmm. screening that you saw was a lot of doula, mm-hmm. doula, midwife people who, even in that world that they live in, were surprised by all the, right. you know, facts of the case and the legal and the medical world bumping up against each yeah. other and what does that mean and how isolated some women are. And I think, you know, you know Nikki, speaking to what, what you just asked, I think what we don't understand, we're afraid of. Mm-hmm. And when we're afraid of something, our own survival instincts make us want to, you know, put it out there. It, you know, I, I, so we don't own any of it, you know. That's so true. 
even I mean <clears throat> even to speak on like my grandmother-in-law she's um, she's getting really old and I just love speaking with her about everything she's so just full of knowledge and so willing to share and the other day she said to me um, her sister her husband just passed and then um, her older sister is really sick and she said you know there's this one thing that was always out there that I never had to think about and now it's right here Mm -hmm. and um, and it's just really interesting navigating this time period with her but that's with everything right now even just war all the things that we're dealing with as a society but this one in particular it's so I mean they're all so important to face Mm -hmm. and to try and understand well I think also it's just I understand you know that it is extraordinarily difficult for those of us who operate with a logical mind to step out of our ordinary way of thinking about things, our rational way of thinking about things, and step into the extraordinary mind Mm -hmm. of a woman who is delusional and psychotic. But when you are able to do that, everything she's thinking makes absolutely perfect sense. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I've experienced that over and over and over again in all the cases that I've been on. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I, yeah. When I was first invited to see the um, film, um, I did, had no idea what to expect. And then Carson said, and I mentioned just earlier about this primal feeling and this, her mindset was just kind of like, I need to go. And if I'm going to go, then my children need to go because they cannot survive without exactly. me. And when she put it that way, it totally changed my perspective because coming from a place where I just had my baby and I'm like, I could never imagine this. I don't know what's going on, blah, blah, blah. But then the moment she put it in perspective in that way. So then it becomes the act of a loving mother. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, Yeah. what we didn't mention yet, I don't think, was that Carol did try to kill herself. And and that's when Rudy and Carol's mom walked in. Um, She had a knife in her hand. And when they confronted her, she stabbed herself. And then they they grabbed the knife out of her hand, and um, she but, missed. But, I mean, by, you but know, she she did, she was attempting to kill herself, mm-hmm. you know, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think I think also, you know, if there's anything you can do for Carol, that's how this is how I feel because it was so painful to watch uh, the trial mm-hmm. and and to know what she was facing and the idea that a thirty year old woman, a 32 year old woman would never see a sunrise or anything ever again, you know, for this crime. And we, you know, we can at least in her name, try to tell her story mm-hmm. and get it out there and talk about her and, and give voice to her experience. Yeah, and maybe a momentum will build for her. And mm-hmm. that's what we're hoping, you know, that uh, as people see the film that you know, it's not un, it's not unusual, as you've said, when people understand a case, then they start to petition for for her or find out about her or what okay. is because in the few years that she's been in a couple of years, she's been in Chowchilla now, she has had to be sent back from the penitentiary to the mental uh, facility oh, wow. because uh, she's a danger to herself or others are, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, you know, endangering her. And so it's a very precarious yeah. situation mm-hmm. for her. It, it is really something that we would like to, uh, you know, keep the light on it and mm-hmm. see if we can help her. 
I think we're all concerned about her safety. One one way we're we're hoping to, uh, Veronica had this really cool idea of an alternate distribution method for this film. You know, yes, we want to get it onto one of the big, you know, like Netflix or something. Netflix yeah. or, you know, HBO or mm-hmm. Showtime or PBS, whatever. Mm-hmm. One of those big platforms. But um, Veronica thought that if, if we could get this into and circulate it amongst all of the sorority, in the sorority system, right? Because here's all these young women who are going to come up who are going to be moms, who are going to be policymakers and lawyers and judges and doctors. And if they can all watch this film, that's a really quick way to sort of, you know, Get it out. Get it out there. That's you know. So smart. Now I don't know how to do that, but but if so, if anybody listening here has ins to the sorority system, whatever that really <laughs> I means, I know someone that, that I can put you in touch with. Good, good. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a very important network. Yeah, and I, I mean, think yeah. I think it would be a really uh, a good way. And the sorority system, the the Delphic system, does take issues on like this. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be an important thing to uh, talk with them about. And then they help the whole yeah. system distribute the issue right. or distribute the, the material about the issue. And then it becomes a that year's discussion or, you know, how, how when you're in sorority meetings, everyone gets together and you yeah. talk about whatever charity or other issues you're going to. Uh, and of course, they've done an excellent job with sexual assault on campuses mm-hmm. um, through films like The Hunting Ground, which mm-hmm. toured all over. Uh, the United States to many, many universities and sororities and fraternity houses. And it was a very effective tool in actually getting the universities and the kids and the, and the you know, Greek system to actually look at what, what was their part in all of this and how things were covered up or, you yeah. know, not reported. And it's really changed things. And, and that film was a big part of that. I need to watch that. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. But yeah, I... Uh, distribution of people having access to this film is huge so mm-hmm. right now for people who are listening or watching can they um, find this anywhere or? well you can come to go to the website which is uh, notcarol.com mm-hmm. and um, on the website you'll see the trailer there's also a podcast the that Eamon did yeah. a five-part podcast series about the making of the film and then there's a place where you can write to us and we'll help you figure out um, a private screening or go to another screening you know it's all there for you to we actually have a screening coming up in san diego oh yeah Yeah. thursday night yeah yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. we're traveling all over (laughs) got screenings in chicago and we've done portland and L.A. Did you do New York as well? Yeah. New York, New Jersey. Right. November New York. is UCLA. Mm-hmm. UCLA, yeah, November, yeah, so. It's, yeah, going all over. Yeah, on yeah. On the road. Yeah, but it would be great to get that big push. Mm-hmm. And, uh, get, you know, so that it would be accessible for a lot of people to watch. Whatever we can do to help. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. It was so, so nice to chat with you guys and um, I just really appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate Thank all your you, work Nikki. and and also just Thank taking you. the time to make so much work to create this film and also go through the trials and everything, but then to push it and to continue to push for her story and giving her voice and, and other women. I, I just I just can't thank you enough. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a comment or review and share with your friends. I'm always reading our comments and love hearing from you. So keep in touch and I'll see you next time.